Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. For most of the 20th century, inflation haunted investors. In the years after the Second World War, pent-up demand mixed with supply shortages sent annual inflation in America to over 20%. Mrs. Josephine Wiley of Pittsburgh, like most of her fellow Americans confronted with rising prices, finds that the problem of living within the family budget requires all her resourcefulness, as well as all her ready cash. The global oil shock caused prices to surge in the 1970s, a period now known as the Great Inflation. The Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries imposed its boycott and within a year raised prices more than 300%. And in the 1980s, with Ronald Reagan as their new president, Americans grappled with soaring prices again. It's time to recognize that we've come to a turning point. We're threatened with an economic calamity of tremendous proportions. And the old business-as-usual treatment can't save us. The Fed swooped in, raising rates and crushing the economy and inflation. And in the following four decades, investors and consumers in the rich world adjusted to thinking inflation might have been vanquished. But in 2021, it returned with a vengeance. The Federal Reserve on Wednesday raised interest rates again by another giant three-quarters of a percentage point as it aggressively battles the worst inflation in 40 years. Bringing with it sharply higher rates and the prospect of a recession. How should investors fight back? You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Alice Fullwood. I'm Samaya Keynes. I'm Mike Bird. And in today's show, how high inflation has rewritten the investing rulebook. First, we'll ask what investors are expecting. We're going to live with structurally higher inflation versus pre-pandemic levels, but also recession because the over-tightening from central banks will uh, represent shocks to the economy. Then we'll find out what that means for the trends that have dominated investing for the last decade. Gone are the days of SoftBank where you will throw tens of billions at a company that doesn't even have a proper framework and institution. And we will ask whether investors need to rethink their old strategies. Has this year just been a massive aberration caused by completely idiosyncratic factors? Or have we hit a pivot point and are we going into a new world? and who the winners of the new investing era might be. Sumeya, Mike, hello. Hi, Alice. Hello. Have either of you looked at your uh, investment portfolios lately? Well, yes, actually, I have. I was having a day that was too good, and I wanted to fix that. Yeah, no, I, I don't want to know. I'll never look. I find it's a good rule just, just not to know in any way at all, ever. 
That is probably wiser. We're reaching the end of a torrid year for all kinds of asset classes, thanks to the mammoth shifts in inflation rates and growth expectations, which seem to have caught almost all investors by surprise. Yeah, and and also podcast hosts. I mean, we did admit a few months ago that we were all in team inflation is transitory and also in team wrong. We did. And now it seems like the debate has moved on to whether central banks have the guts to bring inflation all the way back down to 2%. And even if they do, whether we might be getting new bouts of inflation more often in the future than we did in the 2010s. Exactly. And that is a big adjustment for investors because the rule book that they have followed for the last 40 years in which interest rates steadily declined no longer really applies. And that affects basically every asset class. So stocks, bonds, private markets, venture capital, and so on. So to consider how investors are thinking about and preparing for this brave new world, I want to bring in our finance correspondent, Josh Roberts, who is writing about this for the paper. Josh, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me on again. So why don't we start at the very beginning? What are the major macroeconomic drivers of markets and investing today? And and how do those differ from, say, before the pandemic? Well, it's not so much a brave new world as it is back to the future. Since the start of the 1980s, so for 40 years, we had three really quite unusually benign trends. And those were inflation that went from being really quite high to falling across the period and then being pegged to virtually zero. We had the same thing in interest rates. They went from being in the mid-teens percentage points to falling for most of the period, being virtually zero in the aftermath of the financial crisis. And that was accompanied by modest growth across much of the rich world. Now, that was great for equity markets, which had overall, a fantastic 40 years. But particularly in the last decade after the financial crisis, it became a very strange environment where government bonds yielded virtually nothing. And kind of the only game in town was to invest in risky assets. So that's high yield bonds, private credit, private equity, the stock market, and particularly the growth end of the stock market, particularly tech stocks. And that was where we were at the start of the pandemic. And then we had a really major pivot, which was that in 2021, inflation came back. And towards the end of 2021, interest rates started rising again. And then they really accelerated throughout this year. And how have markets taken that shift? How have they reacted? (laughs) Very badly indeed. So pretty much every major market has tanked this year. And that's what's really unusual. We haven't had a stock market crash that's sort of one for the ages. A lot of indices have fallen by about 20%. And you can compare that to, for example, during the financial crisis where the American S&P 500 index fell by nearly 60%, peak to trough. So it's not the, the depth of the fall that's been astonishing. What's been astonishing is that virtually everything has fallen in tandem. So you've had equities falling, you've had government bonds falling, You've had corporate bonds falling. You've had even supposedly safe havens like gold or like currencies like the Japanese yen have gone down in value versus the dollar. 
There's a particularly popular portfolio called the 60-40 portfolio, and this is 60% equities, 40% bonds. The idea is that the equities are going to earn the investor a decent return, but in downturns, when bond prices typically go up, uh, the 40% bonds are going to protect them from losing too much value. From the start of the year to the most recent trough, which was halfway through October, that 60-40 portfolio, if you'd been a dollar investor with bonds being treasuries and stocks being American stocks, that portfolio had had its worst year since 1937. It's meant that there's been pretty much nowhere for investors to hide and protect their value this year. So do we have to sort of chuck out all of those old rules or what are investors doing now? Well, not quite all of them, but definitely some. So this has been a really brutal year for investing in tech stocks. If you look at the NASDAQ index for American equities, that's far more heavily weighted towards tech stocks than the S&P 500 is. And it's done a lot worse. So certainly that overriding preference for growth versus value stocks seems to have gone in reverse for much of this year. But that doesn't mean that all of the trends need to go in the bin. So for example, one of the The great developments during this period was the growth of passive investment funds. So these are cheap tracker funds that allow you to replicate the performance of an entire market for very low fees. And it seems that that was a good development from this period. That is just something that tends to lead to investors keeping more of their returns and paying less in friction costs. So there's no reason why that should necessarily go away. One of the huge reassessments that investors need to make is whether private markets can still be such a great source of returns in a high interest rate world as they were in a low interest rate world. So these ballooned in size when rates were near zero, but earning 7% on an illiquid, possibly riskier private investment looks fantastic if government bonds are near zero, but does it look quite as fantastic if government bonds are now yielding 4%? A lot of investors have bet really big on private markets, and it might be very difficult for them to back out of those bets. But you have to reassess whether they are still as valuable as they were when interest rates were near zero. Thank you, Josh. That was super helpful. We will come back to you later in the show. But to understand how some big investors are thinking through all of these themes and and shifts, we are going to speak to Wei Li, who is the global chief investment strategist at the world's biggest investor, BlackRock. Wei Li, welcome to Money Talks. Thank you so much for having me, Alice. So first, how radically has the macroeconomic environment changed over the last year or so? In our view, actually has changed a lot. So if you look at the great moderation of the last 40 years from mid-80s to before the pandemic, it was a period that was very much blessed with low output volatility, low inflation volatility. It was a period that was blessed with increasing production capacity. And that meant the economic cycles during this period were very much driven by demand. And when that was the case, central banks' tool of interest rate cuts and interest rate hikes were very much effective in addressing the demand side of the equation, which is why we were able to enjoy this period of um, 
low macro volatility. But that period has come to an end because we're in an environment very much shaped by supply as a result of geopolitical fragmentation, in part net zero transition, the pandemic and the tragic war in Ukraine has exacerbated that. But in the environment shaped by supply, the tools of central banks are not as effective in addressing the supply side of the equation. The hiking rates are not going to solve the supply uh, bottlenecks. And as a result of that, actually, the trade-offs facing central banks are a lot tougher in comparison with the great moderation uh, in that the cost of fighting inflation is a lot higher by our estimate if um, the Fed is serious about uh, bringing inflation down to 2% within a reasonable period of time. It represents 2% shock to GDP growth in 2023. And it also represents 3 million additional people out of a job, which would push unemployment rate in the US to 5%. So this is the sort of tough trade-off facing central banks in this new regime. And we very much have seen that actually uh, this past 18 months and one year. What are your expectations um, at BlackRock for inflation and how do you think investors should adapt their portfolios to sort of factor in potentially sort of higher or more volatile inflation in the future? We do expect inflation to settle at a level that is higher than pre-pandemic levels. Now, having said that, inflation should fall meaningfully through the course of next year versus the very elevated levels that we have experienced in 2022. But going from 8 to 4 is a lot easier than going from 4 to 2, especially given our view that in the face of the heavy cost of fighting inflation, central banks actually wouldn't go all the way to bring inflation down to target. They would stop before they get there, which ultimately means that we're going to live with structurally higher inflation versus pre-pandemic levels, but also recession because the over-tightening from central banks will uh, represent shocks to the economy. So now that being our base case, how do we position our portfolios? How do we kind of think about inflation proofing our uh, portfolio? The first thing I would say is that uh, investors should demand higher compensation for holding long-duration bonds. And what else beyond bonds? Right now we have a preference for private credit over private equities because private credit, especially with a floating rate structure, actually gives you a degree of inflation protection. And also if you look at uh, some real assets that actually have contracts tied to inflation, that also could provide that inflation buffer, which is something that we value in this current environment. And I would also say, lastly, to add to the mixed equities uh, over time, you know, thinking about earnings being quoted in nominal terms, there is a intrinsic inflation dynamics, inflation protection embedded in equities more so than bonds. And as we think about positioning for a regime of higher inflation, definitely having that overweight in equities is uh, appropriate. So currently, as we look ahead to 2023, we're underweight equities tactically. But if we have a longer term horizon of five to 10 years, uh, we believe equities are attractively positioned for that inflationary environment that we see. 
The Great Moderation period gave birth to a handful of investing rules, so the classic being the sort of 60-40 portfolio, which put 60% in equities and 40% in bonds. Do you think we now live in a world where that doesn't work because it's not hedging for how volatile inflation is going to be? And do we just have to chuck out the old rule book and have a more aggressive rethink? Absolutely. When equities and bonds were both rallying for an extended period of time, then it doesn't matter actually the composition of your portfolio to some extent, right? Because if everything is going up, as long as you stay invested, you benefit from this market, uh, bull market, and that's fine. So if it is 60-40, well, it works, but frankly, 50-50 would work, 40-60 would also work. Now, depending on what central banks do, either equities can rally or bonds can rally, but they cannot both rally for an extended period of time. They could both rally as a knee-jerk reaction to market relief, but the periods of decades of bull markets in both equities and bonds, that's off the table. So you cannot sit on something and just close the book and, and, and revisit it at the end of the year. We have to really be very tactical uh, and very nimble and making portfolio adjustments accordingly. Weili, thank you so much for joining Money Talks. Thank you so much for having me. After the break, we'll hear how the new normal for investors will change life for everyone, from households to household name tech firms. But first, it's that time in the show where we ask you to take out a subscription to The Economist. That will get you access to our China colleagues' excellent reporting on the protests against the zero COVID restrictions. Listeners can get a great introductory offer at economist.com slash podcast offer. If you're already a subscriber, thank you very much. You should check out our newsletters like Money Talks and The Bottom Line. They're at economist.com slash newsletters. As usual, all of those links are in the notes to this episode. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So we've heard how investors are dealing with high inflation and low growth, but what do their decisions mean for the economy at large? To find out more, I spoke to Mohamed El Arian, who used to run PIMCO and is now chief economic advisor to its parent, Allianz. Hello, Mohamed El Arian. Thank you so much for joining Money Talks. Thank you so much for having me. What are you expecting from inflation going forwards? Is the era of great moderation in inflation and cheap money over? So let me take the US as an example. A year and a half ago, the consensus and certainly the view expressed by the Fed over and over again was that inflation was transitory. That yes, inflation was going up, but we shouldn't worry. It will come down quickly. And therefore, you should look through this major development. It was temporary and reversible. It took the Fed till the end of November to, quote, retire, unquote, transitory from its vocabulary. 
And it's well that it did that because, of course, inflation went up to over 9%. Now we are in a world of declining inflation. But we will not go back to 2% anytime soon. We will increasingly experience what's called inflation stickiness. And I suspect that that inflation stickiness is around 4 to 5%. So at that point, when we get to it, which will be towards the middle and the end of 2023, society, including central banks, is going to have to make a really important decision. Do we live with 4% inflation as long as it is stable? Or there's another choice that society may make, which is let's crush the economy to get back to our 2% target. I don't know right now what decision society will make. I suspect it's more likely to be the former than the latter. But what I'm trying to convey to you that it's a completely different inflation question than it was a year and a bit ago. Part of thinking that, that 4% inflation is, is sort of okay is thinking that it will be stable, as you suggest. I guess if it continues to be volatile, then it's going to keep causing sort of headaches for investors. Is that the right way to think about it? Correct. So we can live with stable inflation. Volatile inflation was, was problematic because you can overshoot on the way up or you can overshoot on the way down. When you overshoot on the way up, you de-anchor inflationary expectations if you overshoot on the way down, you can get a negative growth shock as we all postpone uh, purchases because, say, the price level is coming down. So the key issue is to get acceptable, stable inflation. We've heard a bit about how asset managers are adapting to the sort of regime change in investing that higher or more volatile inflation might bring. But just first up, you know, what kind of portfolio do you think investors should hold in a world with high and volatile inflation? And uh, how big a shift is that from the, the kind of thing you might have recommended investing in before the pandemic? So I think you need a highly differentiated portfolio, which is very different from before. Um, before, when everything was going up, differentiation didn't matter that much. Now it will matter a great deal. It will matter across jurisdictions. It will matter within asset classes. And you've got to have a few things. One, deep liquidity. Because in a world where liquidity is contracting overall, having a strong balance sheet and having termed out debt becomes really important. So you've got to make sure that there's financial resilience. Second, the world itself is changing. The global economy is evolving. So it's important to be able to tap future areas of growth. And then finally, there are certain segments in the marketplace that are inherently weak. They don't have enough what I call resident investors. They have too many tourist investors. There's a fundamental difference between a resident and a tourist. A resident stays in the trade and underwrites the volatility. A tourist escapes, making the liquidity challenges even more. When you put all that together, it results first in a move from passive to active investing. And I suspect you'll see many more people reverse what had been the march to passive. Secondly, valuing collateral, both implicit and explicit. And thirdly, a much better balance between public markets and private markets. What does the potential end of the cheap money era mean for asset classes like venture capital? It benefited greatly from the hunt for yield, the push into riskier assets, but venture also delivered a lot of innovation. So should we expect less of that going forwards? 
So I don't think the era is over in any any sense of the word. But I do think what is over is the notion that everything will somehow work out. Um, when liquidity is abundant, you can refinance yourself over and over again, even if the destination is not a promising one. Because money is looking for various um, outlets, because people feel confident to venture away, not just from their natural habitat, but also from the areas of expertise. So suddenly, um, all sorts of activities attract capital. And the journey seems fine, but at some point you get to a destination. And what, we've, what we have found out now, that when you get to the destination, not everybody can happily coexist in that destination. So differentiation is going to be absolutely critical. We're also seeing venture go back smaller. Gone are the days of SoftBank, where you would throw tens of billions at a company that doesn't even have a proper framework and institution. Um, we're going to go back to the old-style venture. And I think all that is healthy. Can we just turn back to the sort of impacts on, on investing in the economy now? So the adjustment to sort of dealing with higher inflation has meant that nominal rates have gone up significantly. What does that mean for sort of governments and companies that have loaded up on debt to, to fund their way through the pandemic? You know, what will those higher borrowing costs mean? So there's a specific issue and there's a general issue. The specific issue is that if you're running a deficit or you have to refinance maturing debt, your world has changed and has changed in a significant way. Your interest cost is going to go up in a notable fashion. And your ability to refinance is not only going to be painful in terms of your new interest rates, but also in terms of availability of funding. Certain people will find that they are credit rationed in a way that they haven't been for a very long time. So balance sheet resilience becomes really important, as does debt management. And that's true for governments, it's true for companies, and it's true for households. That is a specific issue. There's a more general issue that is much trickier. The system did what the system is supposed to do. It optimized a world of zero interest rates, and it optimized a world in which central banks were injecting massive liquidity on a predictable basis. And that's a world in which people took on too much risk. And there was a certain assumption that central banks were our BFFs, our best friends forever. That world has changed radically. Mohamed Alarian, thank you so much for joining Money Talks. Thank you so much for having me. I'm back again with The Economist, Josh Roberts. So thank you very much for sticking around. Um, one of the things that struck me listening to Whaley and Mohamed Al-Aryan is that they have slightly different views on how much the sort of world has really changed. So Whaley seems to think we're going to keep getting these supply-driven inflationary shocks. And so she's recommending, you know, still holding inflation hedges going forwards Whereas Mohamed El-Aryan seemed to think maybe we're just adjusting to a world with slightly higher, maybe 4%, but kind of stable inflation. And so he is more focused on the near-term economic damage that the tightening might cause and, and therefore picking winners among companies or sort of debtors and, and things. Is that something you came across much in your reporting, this variation in, in how much the world has really shifted? Yeah, absolutely. It's this question, this big debate of... Has this year just been a massive aberration caused by completely idiosyncratic factors? So 
the supply chain pileups at the end of the pandemic, uh, people having left the workforce during lockdowns and being slow to rejoin it, and then all supercharged by the war in Ukraine. So are those all one-offs? And are we just heading back into the old normal of the last 10 years? Or have we hit a pivot point and are we going into a new world? A lot of the investors that I spoke to were particularly cautious of trying to predict that. You know, we sit here and we want to say that big macroeconomic trends are changing. But I think people who have been in the investment game for a long time are particularly wary of trying to predict those things when they've been burned so many times before, of trying to say, okay, this is a new macroeconomic regime and we need to adapt to it. And then that's not at all how it turns out. So I think one of the really big themes was this idea of diversification. You know, investors are not going to be able to reliably predict where inflation goes in one, two or five years and how often the shocks are. But it's important to build in hedges against that uncertainty. So, you know, the idea of including commodities in your portfolio where you might not have done before is particularly important because commodities are a frequent driver of inflation. They're also a great way of hedging against it. Yeah, it's almost as though if you don't include those hedges, you're betting that the world hasn't changed, which itself is now a sort of risk that you need to account for. Could we talk a bit more now about the impact on the economy of these shifts? We've talked about how investors are adapting, but what about the end entities that investors invested, the companies and, and governments? Surely this shift has put some companies, some governments in sort of a very tight spot. Yeah, absolutely. So during the 40 years when interest rate fell, and then particularly the last 10, 15 years when money was very cheap, central banks were flooding the market with liquidity, the world, governments and companies got into an absolutely enormous amount of debt. And one of the really big challenges now is whether central banks in their rush to tame inflation can actually raise interest rates high enough to do that without inflicting enormous pain on those companies and governments. It's what we call the debt trap, right? Do we have the appetite to endure the economic downturn it would take to really kill inflation if inflation took off in a big way? Yeah, so certainly there, there are going to be some uh, some big losers from this shift. One of the, the points that you make in your excellent piece is about some of the, the distributional winners and losers of this shift to a higher rate, higher inflation world. So who are these winners and losers then? Well, so from any market crash, the people who are the most vulnerable are the people who are relying on their investments to fund their retirement and who are very close to that retirement because they have the least time to recoup any losses, whether that's by investing again or by saving more. So those a few years from retirement are always most vulnerable. The flip side of that is that things look much brighter for younger generations. So one of the bad effects of the storming equity market that you had post-financial crisis was that it brought forward future returns. You know, the fact that equities were doing so well meant that they would be expected to do less well in the future. They were getting more expensive. They were bringing forward into their present value the promises of future profits. And, you know, that was great if you owned them. But if you were a young person starting to save, what it was doing was depressing your expected returns from that. 
just uh, to seek some sort of personal financial advice, I guess, most of the hosts of uh, Money Talks and, and yourself, we're in that sort of middle 30 to sort of 40 year old bucket. So uh, what does it mean for the people like us? So I think it's a mixed blessing for people in their 30s and 40s. So for many in that cohort, they wouldn't have saved enough at the start of the boom years to have really benefited from the the bull market that followed the financial crisis. But they probably have saved enough by the end of it to still have been pretty hard hit by this year's downturn. Now, they do have that silver lining that pretty much everybody has of higher expected returns in the future. But the sting for this cohort is they're also particularly likely to be hard hit by a housing slump that is taking place pretty much all across the world and that's only just starting. So people in that cohort might have recently bought their first home. They might have bought it at quite a high valuation and at a mortgage rate that was pretty low. Now the valuation of their home is likely to be hit and also the interest rate on their mortgage is likely to go up. So that will have lasting effects on a generation's finances. But on the plus side, if you save now, you can hope to earn more in the future. Yes, always good advice to uh, to try and save some more money. Josh, thank you so much for joining the show. Thanks very much for having me, Alice. So, Mike Sumea, how are you feeling about your investment portfolios now? Well, as I said at the beginning, uh, if I refuse to look, then it simply isn't real. But more seriously, I, I think that what's interesting about all of this is the way that rising asset prices during the 2010s uh, clearly papered over a lot of pretty miserable wage growth and economic growth generally. If you're a sort of solidly middle class person in the rich world who is able to save, you are happy that the, the value of your house might be going up, you could stick some money in an ISA or a 401k and, and know that your liquid investments were going up in value. And at the very least, that sort of deal, that sort of balance has seen a huge shock. And it's quite possible that it's not coming back. And I don't think we've really totally dealt with the ramifications of that yet. I do wonder, too, about some of these big investment themes being overturned, not completely, but definitely at the margin. I don't think passive investment is going away. I've got a personal preference for that. I don't like paying high fees. You know, I think index tracking is a sort of still likely to be the wave of the future in investing. But you look at an area like macro trading, uh, where you have hedge funds that once sort of dominated the world with big bets on geopolitical and economic shifts. Those sort of funds started to dwindle away over sort of 20 or 30 years, partly because of the sort of predictability of that period. They've had an amazing 2022. They've done really well this year. And I think it's clear that in these conditions, the sort of line go up environment having gone away, there's clearly a lot more potential for people who have views outside of the consensus benefiting financially from that. It's not as much of a one-way street. It's not an environment where where passive will predominate quite so much, I think. Yeah, I mean, I agree with all of that. And, and I think more generally, my main takeaway from this episode is something that Josh mentioned right at the beginning, which is that this is less of a a new normal and more of a return to the old normal. You know, that deal that Mike, you were just describing was, was really weird. And it had some fairly significant 
downsides. And now we may be in this transition back to this old equilibrium or this new equilibrium. And that was always going to be really painful, right? People have placed bets, they have made decisions, um, assuming that the consensus would just persist forever. But it's possible that once the adjustment has happened, there may be some upsides, right? You could get higher expected returns on on assets. I guess from a central banking perspective, the parallel is that, you know, being at the zero lower bound was a very uncomfortable place to be. And there are benefits from getting away from it, i.e. your main policy tool working again. Yeah, I agree. It's the sort of transition that really hurts rather than the sort of potential new or or old normal equilibrium uh, that we might be returning to. And I guess the interesting question for me is, you know, how many of the trends that we grew accustomed to over the last sort of decade plus um, in investing were just sort of predicated on there being sort of abundant cheap money and how many of them can survive without that. And I agree with Mike that I think that the passive versus active index fund trend is sort of one that I anticipate will stick around. But the questions that Josh raised about how closely investors should be looking at their sort of private asset portfolios, I think, are really critical. And that's been a huge trend that sort of has swept up all kinds of pension funds and and university endowments and, you know, may not pay the dividends that they were expecting. And it's not as easy to sort of reallocate or or shift away from that as it is to shift your public equity and, and bond portfolios. So that's going to be something that I think is sort of really interesting to watch play out over the coming years. And with that, I think it might be time to pivot to our stat of the week. Mike, do you want to take it away? Uh, My stat this week is not a particularly happy one, I'm afraid. Uh, It's driven by the huge news in China over the last week. And that is that only 66% of over 80s in China have completed a course of uh, vaccination against COVID-19. Less than half have been boosted And I think that puts a lot of context around the Chinese government finding itself sort of between a rock and a hard place, largely of its own making when it comes to reopening the country to the rest of the world. Still got a very, very low vaccination rate among the very elderly people who are particularly vulnerable to COVID. Yes, I spied that you had uh, had tweeted this out, so I was expecting it to to make an appearance on Money Talks, but I'm glad. It's such a fascinating and, and important statistic. I'm glad it's sort of being aired here, as well as to your uh, many Twitter followers. Well, here's, here's a stat I have not aired to my Twitter followers. My stat is that nearly 15% of Britain's homes still lack fully double-glazed windows, which is not good for the old heating efficiency in general. And this is actually a personally relevant stat as I will shortly be moving into a home with single glazed windows and it is very very distressing. My parents replaced all of their windows like a year ago and it was unbelievably expensive. Replacing windows is to cost more money than you can possibly imagine so not to be the bearer of bad news mode, but if you want to swap out all your uh, dodgy old windows for, for shiny new ones it is going to cost you. Great. Uh, Speaking of uh, spending money, although this is probably more on things people don't need, uh, my stat of the week is $35.3 billion, or an increase of 4%, which is the amount of money that Americans spent uh, shopping during what's called Cyber Week. So that's Thanksgiving to Cyber Monday. 
And up 4% year on year would normally be quite good growth. But given the rate of inflation, if anything, indicates that consumers were holding back a little during that sort of frenzied uh, period of discounts in which you can buy flat screen TVs for next to nothing. And with that, our thanks this week to Bailey and Mohammed Alarian. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And you can always write to us at podcasts at economist.com. Today's show was produced by Dan Asher and Marie Keyworth. Our sound engineer is Nika Raufast. Our executive producer is Hannah Marino. I'm Alice Forward. I'm Mike Bird. I'm Simea Keynes. And this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.